This morning we've been engaging in something strange, or at least it can be strange to some. Uh, recently my, my wife and I were, were talking about how uh, a number of years ago she had invited a friend to church. Um, this friend was from a, a Hindu background, and, and afterward they were, they were talking uh, about the service, and this friend confessed that the thing that had made her most uncomfortable about the service, or in the service, was the singing. All of the praise to God. It, it was strange and uncomfortable because it was, it was deeply personal, clearly, to the people who were singing. And, and she uh, wasn't personally connected to Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of Jesus, first of all, let me say thank you for joining us here this morning. We're, we're honored that you've joined us. But maybe you can identify with, with that discomfort that I just mentioned. Maybe all of, all of that singing and praise to God is one of the things that makes church uncomfortable for you. Well, the truth, friend, uh, is that you're, you're not the first one to, to feel uncomfortable by, by the singing. Um, those outside of the Christian faith have actually long felt uncomfortable uh, and found this singing, this praise to God strange. More than 1900 years ago, in 112 AD, a Roman governor named Pliny wrote to the emperor Trajan for advice on how to deal with Christians. Now, he didn't know what to do with them. Up to this point, he had simply been asking them three times if they were Christians. Are you a Christian? Yes. And if they confessed they were a Christian three times, if they identified as Christians, he would put them to death. In his letter to the emperor, Pliny's letter to Trajan, he finally got to the nub of what was wrong with 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 uh, Christians, he wrote this. He wrote, The main of their faults, or of their mistake, is this, that they are wont to, on a stated day, meet together before it was light, and to sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. So, so do you understand what, what Pliny is saying? The, the main problem with Christians was that they got together on Sunday, and sang songs to Jesus as if He were God. In other words, one of the problems that Pliny had with Christians was that they praised Jesus Christ as God, and that this was manifested in song. Well, praise to God has marked the people of God from the dawn of time. Why do God's people do this? Why do Christians praise Jesus? This morning, as we study Psalm 113, we learn the answers to those questions and more. And if you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 113. And if you're, you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 510. 510. Over the last several weeks, we've been studying through a handful of Psalms. And one of the things that I hope you've taken away from this journey in the Psalms is that, that these Psalms, they were the, the prayer and hymn book of the ancient people of God. Uh, these were the songs they sang to one another in corporate worship. These were the prayers they prayed beside their beds. These poems were how they expressed their fears and their failures to God. These were the ballads through which they confessed their sin and expressed their confidence in God's mercy. These psalms were not just for the ancient people of God. They're also for us. These songs and poems are meant to move us and make us more like Jesus, the one to whom they point. In fact... Psalm 113 is the first in a group of songs known as the Egyptian Hillel. Psalms 113 to 118 make up the Egyptian Hillel. 
Egyptian Hillel Psalms would have been sung during the celebration of the Passover. And the Passover was the, the night in which God rescued His people from slavery in Egypt. The, the people of Israel, they, they sacrificed the lamb and they spread its blood over the, the doorposts of their home. And Psalm 113 to 118 were, were sung to remember and commemorate God's saving kindness to Israel. So, so stop and consider this for a moment. This morning, we're reading and studying a psalm that would have been on Jesus' lips during the last week of His life. Jesus may have even sung this psalm when He celebrated the Passover feast with His disciples. Remember, that was the night in which He was betrayed and instituted the Lord's Supper. Consider that these words were on Jesus' lips as He knowingly approached His death. Jesus sang praise to God with His death days, if not hours, away. The focus of Psalm 113 is not hard to see. Just take a look at the beginning and the end. The psalm begins with, with three simple words you see there, right? Praise the Lord. And take a look at the end. The psalm ends with three simple words. Praise the Lord. Here's, here's the message of Psalm 113 in a sentence. And the message really of this sermon. Praise the Lord. For though He is high and holy, He saves the lowly. Praise the Lord. For though He is high and holy... He saves the lowly. See if you can spot the truth of that sentence as we read this psalm. Please listen or follow along as I read Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Well, I trust that you can see that this psalm is about praising God from beginning to end. We're going to study this psalm in three sections under three headings. God's praise, God's position, and God's pity. God's praise, that's the exhortation we're given in verses 1 to 3. God's position, that's the reminder we're given in verses 4 to 6. God's pity, that's the encouragement we're given in verses 7 to 9. Well, let's begin with our first point, God's praise. And as we do, please follow along as I read the first three verses of the psalm again. Psalm 113, verses 1 to 3. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Well, the, the emphasis of, of these verses is obvious. We are to praise the Lord. But notice something about the structure of these three verses. They begin with praise the Lord. And then notice how that phrase is actually inverted at the end. We move from praise the Lord to the Lord is to be praised. The beginning and end are, are functioning like brackets. They're kind of boxing in the middle, the heart of these verses. And yet we cannot pass by the opening exhortation or, or command too quickly. We are here commanded to praise. 
What does that mean? What does it mean to praise something or someone? It means that we, we honor, we reverence, glorify, esteem, value, commend, boast in, and declare their worthiness for worship and devotion. But we are not to give praise generally. You see here, we're, we're to give praise specifically. We're to give praise to the Lord. We're to give praise to Yahweh. That's why those letters L-O-R-D are, are capitalized. Because we're to give praise to the great I Am, or, or Yahweh, as God is known throughout the Old Testament. Now, this seems rather obvious, right? Of course we're to praise Yahweh. Of course God's people are to, to praise their God. Did the psalmist, did he really need to specify and say, praise the Lord? Couldn't he just have said, praise? And, and everyone would have known who they are supposed to praise. Well, we could ask this question of other psalms, too, for this kind of exhortation is found all throughout the Psalter. Numerous psalms call us to praise the Lord. Why do you think we're told over and over again, not just to praise, but to praise the Lord? Could it be that one of life's greatest struggles is a struggle for praise? I mean, we, we love it when our name is praised. We want love. We want approval or praise from our, our boss and co-workers, uh, children. They want the praise of their parents. Students want the praise of their teachers. Believers want the praise of their elders and mentors in the faith. To some extent, that's not, that's not altogether wrong. But the question is, is, is do we love our praise more than God's praise? Sometimes we do, don't we? One of life's greatest struggles is to praise God above all else and everyone else, including ourselves. We, we actually need this exhortation, which is really a command. We need this command because when we obey it, when we actually praise the Lord, we turn outward from ourselves and upward to God. Obedience to this command guards us from being glory thieves. Obedience to this command rightly reminds us of, of who we are. And, and who are we? The middle of verse 1 tells us. Do you see it there? We are servants of the Lord. This reminder further clarifies the struggle for praise. Part of our struggle for praise is that we forget that we are but servants of the Lord. We have all been made in God's image, and we've been made to love, worship, and serve Him. Just, just a minute ago, we reflected on how we want the praise of our bosses, parents, elders, mentors in the Christian life. And to be clear, bosses, parents, elders, and mentors should praise their employees, children, and members that they're shepherding. We should encourage and honor those under our leadership and authority. But what are we seeing here? We're seeing a call to praise not, not one who is under us, but one who's over us. Being a glory thief is about reversing the created order. It is about attempting to place God under us, when in reality, He's over us. Praising God is a sure way to undermine our pride and encourage our humility. Do you, do you think of yourself as a servant? Do you recognize that's a God-given identity to you as a believer in Jesus Christ? We need to go through life mindful of this. We are, we are servants of the Lord. This is a humbling calling. We, we want to be served, but we're called to serve. We're, we're called to serve in our various vocations, and we're called to serve in our various relations. So in our workplaces, whether we're at the top or the bottom of the pecking order, we're called to serve. Bosses should be asking, how can I serve those under my authority? 
and employees should be asking, how can I serve those over and above me? Think of what your workplace would be like if everyone was asking, how can I serve? In our government, public servants should be asking, how can I best serve those I represent? So, so when you go to the polls uh, this coming Tuesday, such a question should be a factor in how you cast your ballot. Part of your calculus ought to be, who will use the authority entrusted to them to seek and serve the good of our neighbors? Who will use their authority to serve the principles of justice and mercy? In our homes, husbands should be asking, how can I serve my wife? And if you have children, how can I serve my children? And men, let, let's be honest about the selfishness and the laziness that's often in our hearts. We love to be served, but we've been called to serve. Christ gave himself in service to the church, and we're called to give ourselves in service to our wives and children. None of this denies or rejects authority structures. God does institute authority in the home, the workplace, and other institutions. In fact, our service in these areas brings praise to God. For it rightly demonstrates his praiseworthy character. But we should serve in such a way that those under us praise God. And our service of others is but one of the many ways in which we can praise God with our lives. Praise does not merely come from our lips. It also comes through our lives. There is a sense in which the old adage is true. Actions speak louder than words. It's true often with respect to praise. Still, let's not dismiss praising God with our lips. We really should gather each Lord's Day and sing God's praises. We really should verbally declare that our God has been faithful to His promises to redeem sin-filled people like us. And when we are commended for a job well done, or when we are commended for some display of righteousness or faithfulness, or when we are commended for gentleness, or, or when we are commended for holding to and speaking the truth in love, we should verbally pass on the praise to God. We should acknowledge with our lips that it was God who gave us strength. God who gave us gentleness. God who gave us faithfulness. God who gave us love. God who gave us commitment to the truth. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. And He is worthy of praise. Pass on the praise to the one to whom it's rightly due. To our great God. We're not just told to praise the Lord. But we're told to praise the name of the Lord. In fact, we're told to praise or bless the name of the Lord three times. Now... In, in Hebrew, uh, when you want to put an emphasis on a word or a concept, you repeat it. Uh, when you repeat it three times, then you're, you're emphasizing it really to the highest degree. Just think back to Isaiah chapter 6, where the seraphim are flying around God's throne singing, Holy, holy, holy. They were emphasizing and declaring God's supreme holiness. They were declaring that no one is like our holy God. Bless, as you see there, blesses just another way of saying praise. It's a, it's a synonym, a, a parallel word here. So what does it mean to bless or praise the name of the Lord? Is that really any different than saying praise the Lord? Well, well slightly. There's only a, really a slight difference here. And really, this slight difference is what actually is going to be worked out in the remainder of the psalm. To mention that the name of the Lord is to draw attention to God's attributes. In other words, that the psalmist is reminding us that God's name in Scripture well, really, we should say God's names, for there are dozens. His names reveal His character and attributes. The names of God that we find in Scripture reveal who He is and what He does. 
From the names of God in Scripture, we learn that our God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So, so when we praise the name of the Lord, we praise God for who He is and what He does. And do you know who God is? Do you know what God does? This is in part what it means to know God. And if you're looking for ways to develop your praise of God, to grow in this, consider, consider writing out a prayer of praise and then offering that praise to God in prayer. A prayer of praise is different from a prayer of thanks or a prayer of confession or a prayer of supplication. In a prayer of thanks, we, we give thanks to God for His good gifts. In a prayer of confession, we confess our sin to God. That's what we'll do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, in a prayer of supplication, we petition God for our needs. That's what we did in the pastoral prayer. In a prayer of praise, everything but the character of God fades to the background. So we praise God as Trinity this morning in the prayer of praise. In a prayer of praise, we, we adore God for being infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In His being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, we adore Him for these things. So from verse 1, we learn who we are to praise. And from verses 2 and 3, we learn when we are to praise. We are to praise and bless the name of the Lord from this time forth, from forevermore, from now until eternity, we are to praise God. And if you haven't begun to praise God with your life and your lips, begin today. Do, do not fret or fear. Just begin today. Praise Him today. It's not too late for you to turn from self-love, worship, and praise and to turn around and do that which you were made to do. To praise the name of the Lord. Praise God from this time forth. For forevermore. Not only are we. Uh, not only are, are each and every one of our days. To be filled with praise of God. But so is each hour of each day. Isn't that the message of verse 3 that you see there? From the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. From, from when you rise. To when you rest your head. On your pillow. Your day is to be filled with the praise of God. The whole of our lives is lived in the service and praise and glory of God. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is more, given what we learn in, in Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, not only are we to praise God every day and every hour, we're also to praise God everywhere. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 11, we read, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great, among the nations, and in every place, incense will be offered in my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is what we are to do. We are commanded to praise the Lord. But why? Why is God worthy of our praise? Well, the remainder of the psalm tells us. So having considered God's praise, let's turn now and consider our second point. God's position. And see if you can hear how the psalm describes God's position in verses 4 to 6. The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Well, in brief, these verses express and emphasize God's transcendence. God's transcendence is His supremacy, His exaltedness. What the psalm claims here is that Yahweh, that God, is the Lord of the universe. God is not just high and exalted above one nation, like the nation of Israel. No, God is high and exalted above all nations. 
Now this psalm, it was written with the beliefs of the ancient Near Eastern world in the backdrop. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern world, each nation was, uh, had its own God to believe in, or sometimes a compilation of gods, but they were really regional gods. The claim of this psalm runs directly contrary to that idea. The God of Israel is not just high above the nation of Israel, but high above all nations. And this claim was proven to be true in Israel's exodus from Egypt. In many ways, the, the plagues that God poured out on Egypt were assault, were an assault on Egypt's gods. Listen to Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Lest you think this is irrelevant, remember this psalm was an Egyptian Hillel psalm. A psalm sung during Israel's commemoration of the Passover and their rescue from Egypt. So let's also remember that on the other side of the Exodus, as the waters were crashing down on the heads of Pharaoh's army, this is what Moses sang in Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? This truth is also picked up by other psalms. So consider Psalm 99, verse 2. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. God is not just great in Israel. He's great over all the peoples of the earth. Our God has proven himself to be the sovereign ruler over all nations. He conquered Egypt. He conquered the nations of Canaan. He raised up Assyria for Israel's chastisement and Babylon for Judah's discipline. He called out Cyrus and the Persians for Israel's release from captivity. He raised up Herod and Pilate to, in the words of Acts chapter 4, verse 28, do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to play, take place. He, he raised up Rome to build an empire and roads that in his providence and plan would be used to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to the known world. See, our God is still high above all nations. And this psalm goes further still. Not only is the Lord high above all nations, but his glory is above the heavens. Do you see how the, the psalmist is poetically pushing us to conceive of God in ways that are higher and higher still? God's holy height is something that we can barely conceive. We can think of the heavens, we, we can think of the stars, we can think of the known universe, but we can hardly imagine anything above and beyond. God's glory is above and beyond all that we can fathom and imagine. And this leads the psalmist to ask a question in verses 5 and 6. He asks, who is like the Lord our God? Who indeed? Now, at one level, this question is rhetorical, right? We know the answer. No one is like the Lord our God. At another level, this question is doxological. It's meant to induce the praise of God in us and from us. And yet, at another level, this question is also a challenge. Look throughout the known universe. Consider the gods and you will find that there is none like Him. None like Him. That's the challenge. This has long been the testimony of God's people. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 24, Moses, he asks the same question. He's saying, O oh Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Ethan, the Ezraite, asks the same question in Psalm 89. Verses 6 to 8. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. 
O Lord, with all your faithfulness all around you. And through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 3 to 5, God himself asks this question of his people. He puts the challenge to us. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of Israel, who have borne by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and I will save. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike? Now Christian, think for a moment. Think for a moment about Jesus. Is there anyone like him? Isn't that a question that the gospel writers often put before us? I mean, just just take Mark's gospel as one example. Jesus, he he heals a man with an unclean spirit in Mark chapter 1. And those around him are amazed. And they ask, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. And then just a few chapters later in Mark chapter 4, Jesus, he rebukes the winds and the waves, saying, peace, be still. And what do the disciples, those who know him best, what do they ask? In Mark chapter 4, verse 41, they ask this, who then is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. We, we could keep going, but I, I trust you get the point. There's no one like our God. There's no one like our Savior. There's no one like Jesus. Christian, do you, do you ever communicate that about Jesus to your friends and family members? Have you ever told them that there's no one like him? No one who loves like him. No one who heals like him or forgives like him. That may be a good challenge to invite your unbelieving friends and family members and co-workers. Challenge them to read one of the Gospels and encourage them to ask this question as they read. Have you ever met anyone like this? Have you ever met anyone like Jesus? When we read the Gospels, I I think we should be taken aback by who we encounter in Jesus. We should marvel at the grace and greatness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We should recognize that His greatness, it's an active greatness. You see that little phrase at the end of verse 5, who is seated on high? God's being seated doesn't mean he's uninvolved. Quite the opposite. It means that he is presently ruling the universe from his throne. He is actively involved in our world, in our lives. Simply because God is transcendent doesn't mean he is absent. He is very much present in power. Don't you just love the question of verse 6? The psalmist has poetically pushed us to conceive of God as unimaginably high and exalted. And then he paints this picture for us of the great distance that God has to look down just to see the heavens. God has to look far down and then he sees the heavens and the earth. Brothers and sisters, consider that God not only looked down, but he came down. Listen to the words of Frank Houghton's great hymn. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. Thrones for a manger didst surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. This is what we turn to consider in our third And final point, God's pity. Now the word pity, it's got something of a bad rap in our day. I don't mean pity in any sort of derogatory or dismissive way. By pity, I mean being moved to express compassion toward those in need because you love them. God's pity is poured out upon his people because he loves them. Just 
Just think of when he heard the cries of his people in Egypt. Like a loving father, God heard the cry of his son and he came to their rescue. Just think of when you were young or if you're young now. Think of when you get hurt or injured or sick. Your pain makes your parents ache. Sometimes uh, we as parents, you know, we, we, we get this feeling of pain and hurt. When, when you're hurt, it, it wells up inside of us. And we want to do everything possible to relieve you of this feeling of pain in that very moment. We pity you. We are moved to express compassion toward you because you are in need and because we love you. And members of, of Arlington Baptist Church, you need to know that your elders feel this for you too. So when you are, are physically suffering or when you're spiritually struggling, we, we pity you and we love you and we feel for you. Our hearts hurt along with yours. Let's turn then and consider God's pity now. See if you can hear the truth that though God is high and holy, He, he pities, He saves the lowly. Listen to verses 7 to 9. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. These verses, they, they demonstrate a reversal of fortunes. The poor are made princes, and the childless are given children. We should not fail to see or hear in these verses that a reversal of for fortunes occurs because, God, because of God's pity, because of His compassion, and because of His action for His people. This is yet another reason that He is to be praised. He raises the poor. He gives children. And while our attention is drawn to what God's people get, we must not forget that it is God who gives. Praise not the gifts, but the giver. Praise the Lord, the psalm says. In our lives, this is a constant challenge for us, isn't it? There are so many good things that bring real, genuine pleasure in this life. Many things that are so delightful that we can lose sight of our God who has been delighted to give these good gifts to us. The problem, we must always remember, is not with the gift or with the giver, but with us. Pray that God would teach you to praise Him first and last for, the, for everything that He gives. And this tells us, too, that our God is intimately and personally involved in our world and with us. Here's where we should circle back and remember God's position. Remember, verses 4 to 6 told us that God is transcendent. He's, he's high above all things. And this truth, see here in this psalm, it sits side by side with God's imminence. In other words, God's personally present. He is with and for His people, even though He's ruling high above the peoples of the earth. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. The, the pairing of God's transcendence and His eminence. Psalm 8 opens with these words. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. And then after reflecting on God's loftiness, the psalmist says this in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Later in the Psalms, we find these words in Psalm 138, verse 6, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. And the truth is, no one can say it better than God himself. So listen to what God himself says in Isaiah 57, verse 15. 
For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Like Isaiah 57 verse 15, verses 7 to 9 express God's pity, His loving compassion, His condescension to dwell with His people. He makes the poor princes and He gives the childless children. In other words, God, He reverses the fortunes of the unfortunate. Perhaps you're puzzled. Perhaps you're asking yourself, in what sense does God do this? How does this relate to Jesus? How does it even relate to me? How's this relevant? Well, let's first remember that this psalm was sung in commemoration of the Passover, the night that God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. There's a sense in which this reversal of fortunes was true for the people of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt. God turned their misfortune into great fortune. You see, when Israel actually left Egypt, the Egyptians were handing them their gold and their prized possessions as they were leaving, all while telling them, get out of our land. God would eventually lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey. God reversed their fortunes. The reversal of fortunes described here is also true of individual Israelites throughout the history of Israel. So think again of Hannah. She was a barren woman, and the Lord gave her a child. In fact, uh, the words of Psalm 113 were likely lifted from Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. That's why we read it earlier in the service. Remember the words of verses 7 and 8 here in Psalm 113. Now listen to just a few words from Hannah's song. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. See, these words, the words of verses 7 and 8, are also true for another individual Israelite. Think of David. Didn't God raise him up from being a lowly shepherd boy to being the king of Israel? These words are true in another sense. They were also true for Israel coming out of the exile. When the Persians conquered Babylon, the people of Israel were eventually allowed to return from exile. Their misfortune was reversed. Many of the people of Israel were really and genuinely and horrifically impoverished. The picture presented in verse 7 of the, the lifting of the needy from the ash heap is a, a picture of God removing His saints out of a burned garbage heap or perhaps a city set on fire. When God rescued His people from exile, He rescued them from an incredibly difficult existence. He reversed their misfortune and restored them to a good land. These words were true for Israel in Egypt. They were true for Israel, individual Israelites. They were true for Israel coming out of the exile. And they're also true for Jesus. He too experienced a reversal of fortunes. As Jesus was singing this psalm in the celebration of the Passover, he knew what was before him. He knew that his earthly humiliation would reach its climax in the cross. We are not aware of Jesus possessing much earthly wealth, but we do know that what little he had was stripped away from him at the cross. The cross, though, was not the end for our Savior. It wouldn't be. It couldn't be. For God promised to raise the poor from the dust. In the words of Psalm 16.10, God would not let His Holy One see decay. Three days after His humiliating death on the cross, Jesus was raised up. He was exalted. And now He sits enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. Prince of Peace, who Himself was poor in spirit, now reigns, distributing the riches of His gifts to God's children. The promises of Psalm 113 are also spiritually true for all who believe in Jesus. 
There's a sense in which the promises of Psalm 113, the promises of the Old Testament, use physical realities to communicate spiritual realities that would find full blossom and flower in Jesus Christ. As, as Jesus sang Psalm 113, verses 7 and 9, and celebrated the Passover with His disciples, He was singing His mission to them. To quote the, the second verse of Frank Houghton's great hymn, Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. You see, Jesus sang and gave praise to God for what he had been sent to do and accomplish for his disciples. He was sent to lay down his life so that he might be lifted up and that he might lift up the poor in spirit. He was sent so that all who did receive him, that is to say, all who believed in his name would become children of God. In Jesus' day, Israel was barren. She was devoid of faith. Jesus' earthly ministry proved that Israel was riddled with unbelief. But when Jesus raised up, when he was raised up, and he sent out his spirit, filling sinners with faith on the day of Pentecost, when thousands were converted, God gave barren Israel children of Abraham, children of faith. Do you remember what Paul said God has done for believers in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6? He said that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, Psalm 113, verses 7 and 8, is what God has done for those who believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you been pitied by God? Have you come to recognize that you are poor and needy? Do you know how Jesus began his famous Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where Jesus began his sermon. It was his sermon introduction. It was the first sentence in his sermon, in fact. What was Jesus communicating? In his sermon, Jesus was saying, Blessed are those who recognize they are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who recognize their barrenness. Let me ask you this. What what resources do spiritually bankrupt people have to give to God and receive his blessing in return? Nothing. The kind of people who are blessed by God are not people who have earned God's favor. They are not people who think that they have something that God needs, but people who know they need God. And those who truly know their need of God can also know that they will enter the kingdom of heaven because of the work of Jesus Christ. They are blessed, and an eternal blessing yet awaits them. There is coming a reversal of fortunes for the poor in spirit. Are you the kind of person that Jesus mentioned in his Beatitudes? Are you poor in spirit? Are you lowly and humble of heart? Do we recognize ourselves as utterly helpless before the high and holy God? Do we recognize that because of our sin and rebellion against him, we deserve nothing but his just retribution? And do we recognize that because of God's great love and compassion for sinners like you and me, that he sent his one and only most beloved son to lift up to his heaven all those who would ever turn from their sin and self-praise and trust in Jesus. Jesus came to live, die, and be lifted up from the grave so that he might lift up to heaven all those who would ever believe in him and so praise him all the days of their lives. 
This is where Psalm 113 ends, with the praise of God. Friend, this is God's command to you, to praise Him. And if you want to know more about what it means to live your life in the praise of God, then please come and find me at the door after the service. Speak with a friend or, or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that we could talk about this morning than this good news. We'd love to speak to you about that. We should conclude. Christian praise can be strange. can be a strange sound to unfamiliar ears. But it ought not be a strange sound to the ears of God. He calls us. He commands us to give Him praise. And He's worthy of it. He is transcendent. He is high above all nations. His glory is above the heaven. He's also imminent. He's with us and for us. He raises the poor in spirit and seats His children with Christ in the heavenly places. He turns our mourning into joy. He has not only looked down upon His needy people, but He has come down to rescue us. Praise the Lord, for though He is high and holy, He saves the lowly. Praise the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.